and metta can begin to feel over time like a gentle rain that just gently begins to wear away the hardened edges of our being. So I think the rain, as much as it might not be what you wanted in being here, is, is a, in some ways a very sweet support for what we're doing. Vinny spoke last night about a kind of attitude that's helpful for the practice, you know, cultivating an attitude of curiosity, of kindness, a willingness to know and not know in our practice, really very powerful, the, um, the way we come to these moments of practice, because the work we're doing here together, you know, again, it sounds so wonderful to come on retreat and be in the presence of love, but it's, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy, and practicing here is not about, it's not about not having stuff come up. If you're having stuff come up, great. It means the practice is working. It means something is happening for you. And really to create a ground, a deeper ground to hold this, um, this alchemy, you know, that we're in together over and over is just this willingness to trust awareness, to trust the path, to remember refuge, to, to um, be willing to be real with what's happening for you. The great poet Hafez, his poem, How Did the Rose? How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Can you relate to that? The encouragement of light against your being. Otherwise, we remain too frightened. We remain closed. We remain scared. We remain smaller than we really are. So the encouragement of light against your being this is willingness to be present. It may be the steadiness of your practice. It may be just knowing that we're here, that we're here doing this, this together. And so often, you know, the awareness is conjoined with anxiety. The awareness is conjoined with all the reasons we're not quite good enough, all the reasons we don't quite measure up. The awareness is conjoined with kind of the, the separateness um, and the messages that the culture tells you about yourself that, that aren't true. And so the practice is just deep, deep metabolizing 
of what we've, um, how we've been unconsciously conditioned internally and the conditioning that we absorb externally. It was good to be in the practice meetings with you today. It was good to just kind of have a sense of what's going on, what's going on with some of you and just really appreciating um, the power of mindfulness, the power of metta. As I was writing this talk, I was uh, remembering the image of a statue, a Buddhist statue that I have in my home next to the table where I eat and the table where, where I work a lot. And it's a, it's a standing Buddha in what's called the Abhaya Mudra. And the, the Buddha's hands are like this. So the Buddha's in this, in this posture, the Buddha's palms are up. And the reason for this mudra, this is the, this is the mudra of no fear. The reason for this, this mudra is, is like showing the beings who, who approach the Buddha or approach any being that there's not a weapon in the hand. That, that I'm not carrying a weapon, that my intention is to, to not cause you harm. It's beautiful because sometimes as I go about my life with all of my concerns and worries, I, I just look up at the Buddha, this, this standing form of the Buddha with both palms open. And it's a reminder to, to let the heart settle. And it's a reminder um, really of the complexity of, of how it is for, for us to come together and feel safe enough to settle. And for us to come together in a container where on some level we're, we're doing the best we can not to rub up against each other too much. And we're also here within a huge um, historical context. So it's not so simple. It's not so simple. But just this willingness over and over again to come to this moment of your experience you know, not turning against yourself, not being at war with yourself. You might feel that, just this, this kind of this restlessness. It's not particular to retreat. It's not particular just to spirit rock. But this, this restlessness of the heart, you know, can I settle here? Can I settle with you? Can I settle? Is it okay to soften my belly? Is it okay to just be? So I want to talk a little bit about this kind of core restlessness of the heart. Have, have some of you felt that as you are with the instructions Joanna offered this morning and with the method, do you ever just like, okay, with a few breaths and then the agitation comes up or with a few of the metaphrases and then suddenly the mind is just somewhere else? This kind of fundamental restlessness that, that we tend to notice more on retreat. It's not so much that it actually happens more on retreat, but we tend to notice it more, more on retreat. And just to name, you know, like Vinny talked about last night, to name some of you know, what might be coming up for you. Anger, that kind of explosive big energy of anger, fear, more of the, the um, 
perhaps feeling of being frozen up, uh, reluctant, even, even fear of feeling what's here, you know, fear of our own perfectionism, fear of am I doing it well enough, am I doing it right? Some of you, um, you know, maybe here in the middle of very big things happening in your life. You know, we, we come here in the middle of our lives, all of it. You may be here with a diagnosis or with a major loss or some piece of your history that, that is up for you in a way that you hadn't expected. You may be here you know, really feeling into the political landscape of this country and the climate emergency that we're in. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. We're becoming, we're becoming beautiful people together. Beautiful people do not just happen. So a lot of the instructions we're giving you is to soothe this restlessness, to soothe this tendency of the mind to go out, to settle the, um, the agitation that keeps you hovering above the deeper reality that, that's here to hold you. I was, I was sitting a a month-long retreat a few years ago at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, a place where I practiced a lot. And I, I was going along, I was sitting with a couple of teachers who I trust very, very deeply, who I really love working with. And you know, it, was, it was maybe 10 days into the retreat and I was having a, I was having a good retreat. Things were settled. You know, I, I felt confident in the practice. I was very curious about, about what was going on. And I began to just become aware of this you know, quite unrelenting process of my mind kind of checking out, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay if I go peel an egg at four o'clock and eat it? You know, am I okay if I'm sitting this way in the hall? You know, there was, there was a feeling of wanting some sort of um, constant reassurance from the outside. And in the retreat environment, it's just not there in the same way, right? We're not talking in the same way. So I was just really, really um, in relationship with this, this um, tendency to know that, you know, and, and when the mind isn't fully resting in its own nature, there, there's this checking it out. Am I okay? Do you know that feeling? That, that kind of 
activity that's all, that can always be going on. It's often something that's happening and we're not even aware of it. Want, wanting confirmation, wanting validation, wanting to be, to be lifted up in our idea who we think we are. It's a very common, common um, dukkha to the human experience. And I began just being aware of just how much the thoughts that were going on through my mind you know, it was like an expression of this, am I okay? Really an expression of, of, um, of my own fear. You know, the fear and the ignorance that's right there at the, the root of the judging mind. And there is a sense of the fear wasn't, it wasn't about what it looked like. You know, it wasn't so much about the fear was looking for some story, some thought to hang its hat on. But it was really the fear of the dualistic mind, the fear of letting go more deeply, the fear of opening to and defending against the I don't know. You know, the, the, the ego's strategy to keep experience in a really familiar, narrow um, way, way of operating. And so I could just walk, excuse me, I could just watch it be be projected and be projected and that whole process actually became my teacher. It became really fascinating to feel into the dukkha of that, to take it as, as my teacher and to kind of go beneath the cognitive and soften into, into really understanding what was generating those thought forms in the first place. And this, this thing that we do, in part because we have an amygdala, right? It's always scanning, always checking things out. You know, it's, it's not enough just to have a mental understanding, right? It takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of softening. It takes a lot of, like Vinny was saying, just he can hold Valentino, he can hold himself. It takes a lot of coming back with tenderness, with, with care, Because over time, as we practice this, this fundamental restlessness begins to be understood. And that there are many, many moments where it's not leading the show. Have you had moments yesterday or today where there's just a moment of being? There's just a moment where things are enough. Moments where maybe you can just sink into a bite of food or sink into the mist or sink into the outbreath, where despite yourself, you settle some. Ajahn Tate, great, great teacher, said the function of meditation is to know the difference between the mind and the activity of the mind. That agitation, that restlessness is the activity of the mind. And then there's the mind, the citta, receptive, resonant, remarkably intelligent, insane dimension of who you are. And we get so caught up in all the, all the movement, we miss the stillness. We miss the peace. We miss the immediacy. We miss the freshness. So this, this 
this um, function to know the difference between the mind and the activity of the mind. Because it's really the activity of the mind, a lot of the doing of the mind, and that proliferation that, that um, distances us from the, the really sacred ground that connects us, the sacred ground of our belonging. So in the last few weeks, just in my, in my daily life, uh, maybe, maybe you know how it is to have times when, you know, it's, it's like the externals of your life might not be that different. You might be going along feeling somewhat safe, somewhat secure. Things aren't perfect, but they're manageable enough. And then sometimes you may be going along and just be more in touch with the unreliability of things. Be more in touch with the rub, the friction, the unsatisfactoriness. And it's interesting, the past few weeks in my life, just a kind of a convergence of different things, of some, a few folks I love um, and care for with some really difficult and new diagnoses. There's a a dear elder member of our sangha who, who passed away on Friday. And I saw a movie a movie that was so well done, but it, it really got to me. You know, when you see a movie or read a book that just rocks you, it just really got to me. And, and I was, was kind of watching myself in this, this um, tolerating some of the discomfort of, of that kind of agitation as I'm, as I'm encountering the first noble truth, you know, as I'm encountering suffering is like this and the reason we call suffering noble is because it's what we can really wake up through you probably wouldn't be here on this path looking more deeply if there wasn't some measure of suffering in your world and it's like as we as we actually feel the unreliability there's a um a yearning a desire right to be free from it. And there may also be a desire to run away, but that never works so well. And so it's just been fascinating to watch my own process. And I wanted to share the sutta with you because it's speaking to this restlessness that I'm pointing to. And the restlessness is not the end of the story. The restlessness is definitely not the end of the story. Freedom. Happiness, peace, joy, empowerment is, I don't even think, I don't think there is an end of the story exactly, really. There's an understanding of it though. But the sutta, there's a sutta called the Atadana Sutta, and that, this means picking up a stick. Atadana is, is picking something up, picking up the rod. And this is a sutta from the chapter of eights, from the Sutta Nipata which is, is um, a very old part of the Pali Canon. And this is really, you know, the Buddha was teaching to the people of his times who were going through 
the challenges of their time and who, not unlike us, were just willing to respond in a new way, willing to go against the current, wanting to understand the roots, the roots of individual and collective suffering. That's remarkable, really, because like on one level we know, right? You, you know that happiness only lives in this moment. Anything other than that is an idea. We know that happiness only lives in this moment. You know, and yet, what's being known in this moment is like, it's very, very powerful and mysterious and like the totality of, of your life experience, some influence of your ancestors' life's experience, like so much that conditions the way we experience this moment. It's remarkable, really. But this is, this is speaking to want, wanting to understand the roots of individual and collective suffering. And as I, as I read this, like, I invite you to listen with your whole body, not just your head, but just your whole body. Because the Buddha was a master teacher in, in bringing forth... Um, Imagery, really, in the felt sense. You know, he was teaching to folks his different temperaments. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. In seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. And I long to find in myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see and lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and one settles down. It goes on and on, but that's the first part of the sutta. It's like powerful imagery, seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow. Do you feel like that sometimes in our world? And just this, this, this fear and this feeling of like the, the world lacking essence and, and not knowing how to respond and, and recognizing that what needs to be done, the thorn from the heart needs to be removed. And that when the thorn is removed, the heart settles. The mind returns to itself. The mind isn't occluded by all the activity. It's resting more deeply. 
And I think some of why I'm talking about this is just, you know, it's like when we, when we come here, you know, we're not separate from the rest of life. We're protected in some ways, right? But we're still, um, you know, practicing within the normative culture, practicing within the, you know, the white supremacy that's part of the normative culture, practicing within, as I mentioned, the, the climate, climate emergency. And, and part of the need for retreat is really to, to find refuge because there is nowhere to go outside your own heart. That's what the Buddha is saying. The thorn needs to be removed. And the thorn is a metaphor for our confusion, our deep confusion, our deep separation. The ways we turn against ourselves over and over again. And this is part of the power of mindfulness, a metta. You know, just like a, in, a, in a wound, if you have, if you have a wound, you don't just rip out what caused the wound, right? Because that just creates more of a tear. There's just this the softening that needs to happen to allow the thorn to come out. The tenderizing that needs to happen and the mindfulness is, is really the, the precision, the wisdom, the understanding of how do I remove this thorn? How do I... Um, really see, really know the source of this restlessness, the source that keeps the engine going, that keeps the wheel of samsara turning. And so everything we're doing here is really um, looking at how are you in relationship? How are you in relationship to what's happening? How are you in relationship when you're going through the metaphrases and your, your mind keeps taking off, you know? Is it possible to celebrate when you come back, when you return? Because we're we're really shining the light on everything in our hearts that is not metta, that is not wisdom, that is not understanding. If some of you may have heard the story about a gigantic, just a gigantic um, clay, what appeared to be a clay Buddha statue that was... Um, I, I heard of this story coming to light. I didn't hear of it in 1957 because I wasn't born then. But, but this kind of discovery happened in Myanmar um, in 1957 was this huge clay Buddha, just an enormous Buddha, and they needed to move the Buddha. It was a very, very heavy, heavy um, Buddha to move, and they were cleaning the Buddha and preparing this huge, huge Buddha rupa to be moved and um, as they were beginning to move the Buddha there was just this this crack in the exterior of the Buddha and there was a the ray of light 
that came through and somebody went and peeked in the crack and deep into the Buddha, what they saw shining back at them was, was gold, was solid gold. And so they became curious about this Buddha. And this is a, this is a true story. And they began chipping away at the clay. And as it turned out, this was an enormous solid gold Buddha that had been covered in clay to protect this figure, this Buddha, from attacks. It was like a solid gold Buddha in this clay exterior, and nobody, nobody knew um, what the Buddha was actually made of. And so it's a little like this for us, that where the metta is um, beginning to chip away at the cracks of the exterior that we've had to create the exterior that we put on, the armor that we put on to, to move through the world and get through our days. And, and not unlike this figure, you know, we forget, literally. <laughs> like like um, Joanna was saying, sati, to remember, we forget. We forget our own, the luminosity, the goodness, the beauty of our deepest nature. Okay, covering some of the bases, suffering, now death. How's that for you? Um, <laughs> you know, when you, when, you, when you are at the end of your life, and you think about the end of your life, and you look back on how you've lived, you look back on the choices you made. You know, I, I, I believe a lot of what happens for most folks um, and looking back at our brief and precious lives is just this, this, um, this question of how, how, did, how did we love? At the end of my life, I expect to reflect, not just at the end of my life, it's a daily reflection, but I expect to care about how I loved, about how I showed up in this web of relationship. And I wanted to just share with you a bit about um, one of the really greatest teachings in my own life, in my whole adult life, really. I, I have a lot of, um, my life is very much steeped in, in, in Dhamma. Great good fortune that it is this way. And I think that um, one of the greatest teachings of my, of my adult life was being with my mother in her experience of getting sick and in her experience of taking leave of this life. It taught me so much about love. It taught me so much about that restlessness and dukkha of, of, um, and, and the separateness within the ideas of who we take ourselves to be. And so as I, as I think about metta, I realize my mother was like an unexpected uh, benefactor to me when it comes to to metta practice and really when it comes to the urgency of love in our lives. Um, my mother was, she, she died a few years ago from a pretty rare and aggressive form of cancer. And many of your lives, maybe everybody's life in here has probably been touched by cancer directly. 
or indirectly in one way or another. And with cancer, it's never just the word cancer, right? It's surgeries, radiation, chemo, emotional toll, financial toll, um, awful side effects, you know, so much. Many of you have experiences um, with cancer. And in my mother's journey, there was a lot of suffering. And there was a lot of, initially, a lot of resistance in me as well. And it was fascinating for me because, like many um, mothers and daughters, my mother and I had a really complicated relationship, complex relationship, not an easy relationship for much of the time. And, um, and yet there's these times, right, these life passages we go through that, that just can um, really hit home. Yeah, it's the truth of impermanence and interconnectedness. Where we, can, we can know that on some level, but it can just um, reach the heart in a different way. And so, you know, my mother, as, as, um, as the diagnosis happened and she began to actually realize that she was going to die in a period of some months, she, she began this process of, of just becoming more and more and more tenderized. I felt like I didn't even know her, actually. She became so tender. <laughs> she became so dear and there was some grace that began to happen for us it wasn't something we talked about it wasn't some big psychological processing but there was some grace that happened for us where we weren't taking birth in our stories of each other we weren't taking birth in our fabrications of each other you know it it wasn't so much Aaron and all the history and my mother and all the history it was more that there was just um, being, and this, this surprised me because my mom <laughs> is not a practitioner. And, uh, you know, and, and basically when she really got sick, and I have enough privilege to, to do this, I, I dropped everything in my life and I went to be with her. This was in Fargo, North Dakota, where I grew up. Fargo, like the movie. And... Uh, and my mother, I just watched my mother become this kind of mother. And she was, she was all there, you know, cognitively until the very, very end, become the kind of mother who would kiss me on the lips and who, who would say, you know, she would call me sweetheart. Like, that never happened. You know, that never happened before, um, before she got so sick. And the last words, the last words she said to me, she was just so in and out of consciousness, so, so, so deep within. You know, the last words she said to me, she kind of came out, you know, and just, she just said, I love you, Aaron. I love you, Aaron. She said it five times. And I could see that she was straining so much to say that. She was in so much pain. She came out to say that. And I, (laughs) I take it as such a teaching that at the end of my mother's life, goodness poured forth. It doesn't always go like this. It really doesn't always go like this in families. But it did go this way with my mother. And there's this remarkable um, sense that while she wasn't a practitioner the way I am, she had trained herself in goodness. 
and she made a choice. And at the end, like that was what ended up coming out of her. So, so, so beautiful. We're, we're, we're training in this direction, in this direction of beautiful people do not just happen. We're training in this direction. And it was very fascinating with my mom because we spent a lot of time just in the silence together. Those of you who have spent time with folks who are very sick or dying, you know maybe the impact and intimacy of that space. It's just being in this, in this field together where just um, all the identities went away, you know, and it became this sense of, you know, this like woman who had given birth to me, I was midwifing on her way out. So kind of there wasn't much of any place to coalesce that could be oppositional in any sense of the word. It was really a, an experience of, um, of these, this beautiful intimacy of the undefended heart. And this is what we are practicing together. I struggle sometimes to uh, give words to this teaching. Um, this teaching and Stephen Levine, the great late Stephen Levine points to this a bit. Um, he says, what I mean by love is not an emotion. It's a state of being. True love has no object. Many people speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There's not I and not another, in anyone or anything it touches is, is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone, you can only be unconditional love. It's not a dualistic emotion. It's a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It's a feeling of unity. You don't love another, you are another. And there is no fear because there is no separation. There is no fear, there is no shake because there is no separation. He's speaking to a certain level of reality here. He's really pointing toward the boundless nature of loving kindness, the boundless nature of, of the Brahma Viharas, because so often we compress, um, we compress something that is innately boundless, we compress it into each other. You know? but, but the deepest um, love that's born from emptiness, that's born from the deepest understanding, you can't compress it. It's just an abiding. Vinny was talking about this like awareness imbued, imbued with metta. And so I find that there's a great deal of mercy. It's a, we don't use the mercy so much as a Buddhist word, but you know, that experience of my mother's death and the 
the profound suffering and the profound letting go and love that were, it was all there at the same time. You know, love and letting go tend to go together, right? Those of you who are here working with grief know that. Um, yeah, there's a mercy. There's a mercy in this understanding. There's a mercy in practicing in this way that allows us to begin to rest within the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. There's a mercy in just in a moment, you know, of like not adding to your suffering. <laughs> that was talked about in one of the groups today, just a moment of recognizing, oh, thinking is happening. Wow, that's clearly seen. Just a moment of not adding to the snowball of the suffering. Very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And on one level, like we don't have to engineer our good work in the world because we are already connected, deeply interconnected. And what we're, what we're doing here is just so, um, so wholesome together. Another poem by Hafez. Do you feel like this inside? It's admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you wouldn't do this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language, what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. It's really, you know, like we keep saying, we're teaching these practices that we use different words to refer to, right? Vipassana, metta, but it's, it's like, it's really one thing. It's really one thing, really. Um, we use this image of, of the path being like a great bird with two wings. And really both wings needing to be developed and full for the bird to fly. And I don't think you'll be sorry at the end of your life for spending your time in this way. You know, turning toward that, uh, that luminosity, that goodness that, uh, that is your deepest heart. I just want to close with a poem by, by Joy Harjo, poet laureate. Joy Harjo, she lives in my neck of the woods, not far from my neck of the woods. And then we'll, um, we'll end the evening with a chant.
This is called Eagle, Eagle Palm. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. I'll just take a moment to let the, the words settle. <laughs>